Well, good morning again. Uh, if you are new with us, my name's Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. And that, of course, was a scene from the Avengers, Age of Ultron. Uh, it's kind of an exciting way to go- kick off the, uh, the sermon for this morning. I, that's probably as exciting as it's going to get. I, 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 probably, I mean, maybe I'll try and figure out some kind of cool, like, backflip thing here. But then uh, those of you who are in the medical profession in the audience, just be prepared that you'll be on call. Um, so in this scene, of course, uh, we get the Scarlet Witch, who is used to, I mean, if you're familiar with the story, uh, we won't spend a lot of time on it. You could watch the movie. It's pretty cool. Um, but her backstory is she's used to using all of her amazing resources, her gifts, to basically protect herself and her brother. Um, that these gifts that she has, these, these kind of special powers, have largely been used for self-protection. And suddenly she's in this situation where she's a part of something that's bigger than just her. You, you hear this kind of talk that Hawkeye's having with her uh, about her options, right? She can kind of stay there and not do anything, and she'll be fine, or she can come out and join this team of people, the Avengers, and be a part of something bigger. Use her resources, use her talents, her gifts to save the world. Well, we're continuing a series, and in fact, we're wrapping up a series that we've been calling What's New. We've been on this since Easter, and we've been looking at how our hope in the resurrection comes to bear on just everyday normal life, choices we make about work and vocation, how we spend our leisure time, um, our purpose in life, how we deal with uh, change and transitions we go through. And today, we're going to wrap things up by looking at how for those of us who who put our hope in the resurrection, how that impacts how we think about our resources. And we're going to start by looking at some of how we see this play out in the lives of some of the early followers of Jesus. Um, And we see this in, uh, there's a a book in the New Testament that's typically kind of a history book. It's written by a guy named Luke, and it's called the Acts of the Apostles. We often shorten it to just say Acts. But it's kind of this historical record of the growth of the early church. And I want to read a couple of passages from that to kind of show shifts that started to happen in some of these people's lives. So beginning in Acts chapter 2, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll see that the scriptures are up here. If you don't own a Bible and you would like one, we have Bibles sitting on the countertop in the foyer. Those are uh, free for you to take. We'd love for you to have one if you don't have a Bible. Um, but you can follow along up here. We'll begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They, being this this early group of Jesus followers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Skipping ahead to chapter 4 in Acts, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So as we're looking at these kind of early followers of Jesus, one of the remarkable shifts that we see happen is how they think about their resources. 
they, I mean, they're just normal people, like you, like me, but without some of the, the social safety nets that we might be used to. And here, they are so convinced that life has fundamentally changed in how they ought to view their resources that they're doing things like selling their property and taking the money and giving it to this community of people so that no one is needy, so that no one has any need. What makes that kind of shift happen? Well, we see it in some of the other writings that we get in the New Testament. Um, For example, I'll just read you one. One of the early leaders in this movement was a guy named Peter. He was a follower of Jesus, became one of the leaders in the early church. And he writes in one of his letters in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The shift that happened for these followers of Jesus early on was this realization that because the resurrection is true, And God is now at work to bring about the restoration of all things, to make the world the way it ought to be, to bring beauty and justice and life with God in the world. And they're invited to be a part of it. Everything they have is not their own. It's a tool to be used toward that end. They're stewards. Now, stewards isn't exactly something that we we think about a lot, this, this word steward. So maybe an illustration. I don't know if you've ever had to like um, watch house sit for someone um, or maybe plant sit. We recently had to plant sit for people. Um, we're, we're really bad at plant care. Um, if, you, if you are a plant and you enter our home, this is your final destination. I mean, it's just over for you. Um, we have four children who we work pretty hard to keep alive. After that, Uh, For some reason, we picked up a dog, which kind of tends for itself. It eats the scraps. Plants are stationary. They're just on their own, and they don't do really well. Um, Except, ironically, for this one. Um, This is a real live plant that's in our lives, and I don't understand why. If you know me at all, you know that I'm terrified of spiders. And the only plant that we cannot kill as hard as we try is, I think it's actually called, like, a tarantula fern or something. I don't know what mad scientist genetically engineered this thing, but it honestly made me... I had to pick it up from the, uh, from the, the window to just take the picture and, and lay it on the table, and I almost couldn't do it. I was like, oh, it's touching me. It was really awkward. But we can't kill this one. Other than that, plants die in our home. But recently, one of our neighbors, uh, some of you may know Jacques and Mary, they attend here, they were gone for a couple of months, and they said, hey could you guys just, could one of your kids take care of our plants? And I just thought, oh, this is such a bad decision. Um, and we tried to warn them, but they're like, no, you'll be fine. So we assigned our eldest daughter, our most responsible daughter, the job of, of taking care of these plants. And we were like on this. We were, <laughs> she's up here in case you're wondering what all the chuckling is. She's enjoying the attention. But we, we were on this. You know, like we were every, every week, multiple times, we'd be like, Gracie, when was the last time you went and watered the plants? How, how are they doing? How are the plants doing? Hey, at, you know, sometimes I'd go over with her and we'd check on them. We don't, I can't even tell you the last time I felt to see if our plants had water in them. But we were like on top of this. And they survived and they survived well. When, when Jacques and Mary returned after months of being away, they're like, oh, the plants are great. The soil is moist. She did a great job. Meanwhile, our plants are just falling apart, right? And, and that's okay, because w- what's the difference? The difference is we recognize this wasn't ours. 
someone had entrusted us with something that didn't belong primarily to us. And so there were implications beyond just do we like plants or not that we had to consider. We needed to care for these because it had been entrusted to us by someone else. And that was the shift that occurred for these early followers of Jesus. This recognition that their stuff wasn't primarily simply theirs to consume, but was entrusted to them as tools to dispense God's grace in the world. To join God in his work to bring beauty and justice and life into the world. We are stewards of what we have. And this morning I'm going to look at two of our kind of most precious resources that I think we feel in shortest supply, the most lack in these two areas. And I could do probably, I mean, we could spend hours and hours talking about each one of them. Uh, We're going to try and fit both of them into the next, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. So it will probably fail. But that's okay. Um, We'll we'll do our best. Um, We're going to talk about time and money. Time and money. If I were to ask any of you, like if if we kind of just went down and I asked any of you, what do you feel like you need, like if, if I could give you more of anything in your life, what would you want? My guess is 99% of you would be like, you know, time or money. The other 1% would say like ice cream, which you need money to buy. And so it's kind of like 100% of you would say time or money. We feel the biggest lack in these two areas. I recently read an article out of The Atlantic uh, written by a guy named Neil Gabler. It's called The Secret Shame of Middle Class Americans. And he writes in that, Uh, The American Psychological Association conducts a yearly survey on stress in the United States. The 2014 survey, in which 54% of Americans said they had just enough or not enough money each month to meet their expenses, found money to be the country's number one stressor. 72% of adults reported feeling stressed about money at least some of the time, and nearly a quarter rated their stress extreme. Many of us feel a great deal of anxiety and stress around money. We feel like, I mean, even if we have decent jobs with decent incomes, it's like the activities that face us on a daily basis are like a swarm of locusts that just devour whatever it is that we make. Whether it's dance classes or lacrosse equipment or tournaments, whether it's um, student loans, mortgage payments, credit card debt, whatever it is, life makes money go quickly. And we regularly feel in a pinch, like we don't have enough, or we just barely are making it. In that same article, Gabler, Gabler, can't pronounce his name, um, cites a study from the Federal Reserve Board. This, it fascinated me. A study from the Federal Reserve Board that asked the respondents what they would do in the event of a $400 emergency. So if you had an emergency that happened now that required $400, what would you do immediately? The answer, 47% of respondents, nearly half, 47%, and this is over a broad socioeconomic spectrum, probably not that different than what we have in here. Some who, who make a lot of money, some who don't make that much, and everybody in between, right? The answer, 47% of respondents said that either they would cover the expense by borrowing or selling something, or they would not be able to come up with the $400 at all. Nearly 50%, if a $400 emergency happened, don't have the space in their financial life 
to figure out how to come up with that. That's stressful. You know how easy it is for a $400 emergency to come up? Of course you do. It just happened this morning, right? Like some of you are like, oh my goodness, that's what happened to me on the way here. Um, $400 emergencies can happen anytime. Almost 50% of us are walking around unsure of what we would do in the event of that kind of a situation. That's stressful. When we talk about time, for some of us, it might be even worse. Uh, I'm currently reading Dr. Richard Swinson's book, Margins. Um, And he talks about how we experience what he calls a marginless existence. And when he talks about margins, he's using this kind of, uh, this picture of a page of paper. I know we don't use paper very often. If you can remember, kind of dig back in the old memory banks, those kind of striped, made out of, uh, of trees kind of thing we used to write on. Um, they, it had spaces on the sides, right? Margins. There was white space that we didn't use. And he talks about that. He used that as kind of this word picture for our lives and how the white space, the space where nothing was happening, nothing was filling it, has increasingly shrunk to where now most of us are living without margins. In our, in our finances, and in our times. He, he describes it this way. Tell, you can uh, decide for yourself if this sign sounds familiar. He says, Marginless is being 30 minutes late to the doctor's office because you were 20 minutes late getting out of the bank, because you were 10 minutes late dropping the kids off at school, because the car ran out of gas two blocks from the gas station, and you forgot your wallet. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like, yeah, that is most of my days. Right? This sense that there's just not enough time to do everything that we have to do. There's just not enough time in the day. How many times have you said to someone, if, if I only had like a 25-hour day, if I, had like a 20, if I didn't have to sleep, we'd be good. But, of course, we do. Um, again, regarding time, Dr. Swinson references a study by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health that indicates that the average work year for prime-age working couples has increased by nearly 700 hours in the last two decades. 700 hours. And that high levels of emotional exhaustion at the end of the workday are the norm for 25 to 30% of the workforce. Now, I don't have to tell you this. This is most of our lives. That most of our lives feel packed full. I mean, can you remember, for those of us who are adults, the last time you were like, I'm bored. I mean, the word has practically vanished from our vocabulary. We fill our calendars full of, I mean, some of it is stuff beyond our control, right? Work responsibilities, things that ebb and flow there, emergencies that happen in our home. You know, Tim joked about someone's ceiling collapsing that actually happened to someone here. Uh, The the things that, that happen that we can't plan for that fill our lives. But then all of the things that we pack in along with that. You know, if, if you're a parent who has kids who are involved in extracurriculars, all of the different things that we feel obligated to do or else our kids will grow up deprived and hating us, those things, right? And so we, we cram them full in our calendars, even though every time someone asks us, do you want to do this? In our mind, we scream, of course not! Why would I want to do that? Outside, we say, sure, that sounds fun, right? Like, We cram our schedules full of all of these things. And in part, we do this with with our time, with our money, because we feel like 
we need to or else we're going to miss out on something, right? That, that it, I only get one go at this life and so I need to take advantage of it. And so when I get a little extra, there's these things that I want or I feel like I need. So that word need can get a little fuzzy. Or there's this thing that I, I need to do that, I, that my kids need to do. We have to be involved in this. All of these things that we feel like we have to do, that we have to consume, that we have to take in, or we're going to somehow miss out. And ironically, there's often an inverse correlation between the amount that we consume and the amount of joy that we experience in life. It doesn't always work the way that we think. And so, for us to begin to shift our thinking, to begin to to see ourselves as stewards of our resources. It's going to take some work. But the invitation that we see... Wow, that's interesting. You hear that going on over there? If kids start getting up and like following that, does someone kind of look out the back door and keep an eye on and we're not sure exactly what's happening. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> parents, don't worry. It's all under control. Um, but... I completely lost my train of thought right now. Let me catch myself here. Oh, okay. So, um, but, so the invitation that we see as we watch this, these early follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus is to this kind of radically new way of looking at our resources, right? This, this way of seeing our resources as tools that we can use for the good of the world, to be a part of what God's doing and bringing beauty and justice and life in a way that brings fuller life, deeper life, than we often experience now in our surface, marginless But if we're going to get there, I think practically, if we're going to move from consuming time and money to stewarding it, there's probably a lot of things that we need to do, but there's one kind of super important thing that we're all going to need to do that we're all really bad at, and I'm really, really bad at this. So really, I'm just asking for your help. We all need to figure out how to say no so that we can say yes. Now, my wife really helped me with this because initially, I was just going to say, we all need to figure out how to say no, right? And so I was talking through this with her because oftentimes I'll do this and I'm like, honey, this just doesn't make any sense. I'm afraid I'm going to stand up there and people are going to be like, who is he talking to? Um, And so we're processing a little bit. She's like, I hear what you're trying to say. And and we both actually just read this great book together called The Best Yes. It's written by a woman whose name I can't pronounce. It's like Lisa Turkvister, but I could uh, point it out to you. Um, but we read this together, and we're kind of processing, and she talks a lot about this. And that the point of the no is never about the no. Like, we're not just trying to be people who are just shutting people down. No. No. Right? Like, that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is have space in our lives to say yes to what actually matters. To be able to recognize what it is that we want to live for and have the margins to say yes to not feel trapped into a life that we don't want, but to feel free to say yes to the life that we do want, to the life that we were created for. But in order to do that, it begins with learning to trust. Learning to trust that the God that we see in Jesus, who rises from the dead and says, I will be with you always, will really be with us and care for us as we learn to be stewards of the resources he's given us. You see this all through the, uh, the early church. I'll just quote a couple. They're not even going to be up here. Um, but in, in some of the early letters that Paul, one of the other church leaders, wrote, in, in 2 Corinthians, 
9.8, he says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Again, Paul writes in, in his letter to the Philippian church, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Th- there was this sense of trust that as we steward the resources God has given us, as we see these things as gifts that we get to use for the sake of others, we can trust that what we need will be provided, that we will be taken care of. That doesn't mean, I mean, if you look at their lives, sometimes that wasn't easy. That wasn't the easy life. It wasn't like, so they all ended up with great big houses. And when they did, though, they actually kind of sold them so they could use those resources again. So, but there was a sense of trust that as we walk with God in this common mission, this, this mission that we feel called to, to bring beauty and life and justice, that God will meet our needs as we use our resources to, as tools to dispense God's grace in the world. A couple of, of stories, and I, I feel like this is so, I, for me, it just, I don't even, half the time I'm swimming so neck deep in this marginless existence that I can't get up enough to say, like, what would that even look like? So models of people who do this are really helpful. And one of the examples, when I think about money, one of the examples that's always been really inspiring for me is a guy named Rich Mullins. Now, if you didn't grow up in 90s uh, kind of Christian culture, this name might not mean a lot to you. Um, But for me, um, I I grew up in in an environment where basically all I was allowed to listen to was Christian music. And there was some really great stuff in that, and there was some stuff that wasn't great in that. But... um, Rich Mullins was always an artist that resonated deeply with me. And one of the reasons was he's just an honest dude. In, in a, an environment, that particular one, and, and I think in some ways pop culture does this too in just a different way, but this, there was this expectation that everyone had to look a certain way, everyone had to say the right words, everyone had to be completely confident and excited all the time in a way that often came off, or could come off as artificial. But one of the things I appreciate about this guy, Rich Mullins, was that he was just honest and raw and really wrestled with things in his music. And he was a great musician. And the more I, I learned about him, the more I was struck. So he was very successful because he was a great musician. Um, and so that brought lots of financial benefits. But early on in his career, he made a decision. Something about Jesus in, kind of really grabbed a hold of him to the extent that he took this vision for stewardship deeply seriously and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cap my income at like the average kind of working class American salary, which at the time was I think around $24,000 or something like that. Anything above that that comes in is just I'm giving away. I'm just going to give it away. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, even in like the early 90s, $24,000, well, it does more than it does now. I mean, that's not a lot of money. And I'm guessing his friends who are putting out other albums are bringing in money, and they're probably living in nicer houses and driving nicer cars and making different decisions. And not to be critical of them, because probably similar decisions that I would make. And here's this guy who's so captured by this vision of stewardship. He's like, this is what I need. I I can get by on this. I want to be generous with the rest. I want to see the rest as an opportunity, as a tool that I can use to be about bringing life and beauty and justice in the world. That's challenging for me. 
That's deeply challenging for me. And then I think about my friend Brian, um, who is kind of a, he, he kind of heads a small business. Um, and uh, I was talking with Brian one day when I was uh, kind of processing some, some different life things. And, and he was telling me about how he kind of sets up his schedule. He's a really busy guy. He's got like 30 or 40 people who work for him. And he's like, Tim, look, I work long days. I work, uh, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day, you know, 12-hour shifts, five days a week. So I get about 60 hours a weekend, um, and that's on the kind of a normal week where nothing happens. But here's what I do. When I get home, and he has a family, wife and kids, so when I get home at 6 o'clock, cell phone goes in a drawer, gets shut. Laptop gets closed, gets set on the shelf. Two people who work for me have my home phone number. And they know to only call me in emergencies because they're the only people I will answer the phone for. He goes to bed every night at 10 o'clock so that he can get up at 5 o'clock, work out a little bit, eat a good breakfast, get to work. And I was like, man, that's hard. How do you, like, watch Netflix? How do you binge on Netflix if you're going to bed at 10 o'clock every night? He's like, yeah, sure, it's a great question. I don't. And would I like to? Sure. But to say yes to binging on Netflix means I say no to getting up at 5 a.m. and working out, means I show up grumpier and tired at work, means I'm not emotionally present with my coworkers, means I'm not emotionally present with my family, means I feel more stressed and need to check email, and on and on and on. And what he's saying to me is, like, if I don't, if what I want to be is a good boss who's running my company well and is emotionally present for my employees and is emotionally present for my wife and my children, and is healthy physically, then I've got to say no to something, to good something, because I'm a finite human being. And I'll tell you, I see it in my life. Like, I am not, that is, I'm like, what? That's who I want to be, and I'm not that person. And it's a challenge. Some of my biggest struggles are in that area of kind of what do we do? What do I do with my time? How do I steward my time well? And I'm, I'm inspired by people like Rich Mullins and like my friend Brian who choose to do this. Because you can see in these people's lives that it's not simply then that they're having a huge impact, though they both did. Mullins, was, though he died early, uh, he, he had a remarkable gift. Lots of people were impacted by his music. My friend Brian, his company is doing really well. They're growing. They're making an impact, doing really positive things in the community. None of that would be possible if they weren't willing to say no to good things and say yes to the things that really matter. But in the same way, choosing to say no and yes to the things they choose also shapes who they are and the kind of people that they're becoming. It has a deep formative impact on their lives, what they choose to say yes or no to as well. And this is why I think for me, you know, this is such a struggle. Because I can see it in my own life. I I can notice in my life where I go when I'm lazy about what I say yes or no to. Thankfully, I mean, for us, um, we've been able, uh, when it comes to, when I look at these two things of finances and and, uh, time, for finances, you know, we've been able to to work out some, some patterns, some systems that work really well for us. 
Um, you know, for early on in our marriage, we got some advice, we got some counsel, we, some people kind of led us through thinking about how do, we, how do we use our finances, how do we steward our finances. And one of the first things we decided was to uh, delegate a, a percentage of our income that we would give away. And so for the, the life of our marriage, you know, we've, we've tried to give between 10 and 11% of our income away. Now that's hard. Sometimes we have to say no to things we really want to do, but because we want to be people who are generous, who see things that, that we love, like, like coin-offs, like some other things that we see that we can say, no, we want to we see that thrive. And so we say no to other things so we can say yes to these things. And we've done okay with that and the money in. Time, that's been tougher. Because I function so much as, as a relational person that when someone asks for my time, it kind of, and I know this sounds weird, but it kind of asks like they're asking, do you care about me? And so my response is, of course, well, yes, I care for you. Here's my time. But I'm a finite person. I can only do that so, so much for so many people before I run out of space. And then what happens is I'm not able to be emotionally present for anybody. I'm not able to do the work that I need to do well. I'm not actually able to make choices about how I want to spend my time in a way that lines up with what I think God is doing. I'm just moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And my guess is for each of you, one of those is a little bit more challenging than another. We all struggle with both, I'm guessing, at some level. But for each of you, one is probably a bit more challenging than the other. But for all of us, think the invitation is to consider what we want to say yes to, how we want to join God's work of bringing beauty and life and justice in the world, how we feel called to do that, and what we're going to need to say no to in order to make that possible. So it could be something as small as saying, you know, setting up times in your life where you say, I'm going to put my cell phone, my laptop away. You know, for me, one of the practices I've tried to do is say, from the time I wake up in the morning to the time my kids get on the bus, I will not use social media. Because I know for me, that does something about how attentive I am, how present I am. I don't know about, I don't know what would work for you, but what, what is it? that is taking up the margins in your time that you need to step back and say, can I say no to that so I can say yes to this? Or with your finances. Again, many of us feel like there's just not a lot of wiggle room. And you're probably right. But what is it that you can say no to so that you can say yes to using your finances as, as a resource to be about the things that God is doing in the world? Is it, you know, saying no to that, that new toy that you really want so that you have a little bit of margin this month to give where you want to give? Is it saying no to that thing so that you can pay down debt, so that you feel less stressed, so that you feel like you can be more emotionally present? I don't know. Here's the thing. Wherever you are, you're a finite person. You have limited resources. You've got to say no to something 
<clears throat> so you can say yes to what matters. Jesus models this even for us. Uh, we looked at this in, in community groups a couple of weeks ago, um, but if you're not in community group, or even if you are, I think it's worth another look. Uh, he models this in uh, Mark's biography. In uh, Mark chapter 1, he talks about Jesus very early on in his ministry. And he says, very early in the morning, this is after Jesus is doing some healing, some miraculous things. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So we traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out Jesus, who, for, for Christians, we believe is God in the flesh, doesn't simply make the day 36 hours long so he can fit everything in, but chooses to say, I've got a limited amount of resources, and so I'm going to say no to this really good thing so that I can say yes to this thing that I really need to do. All of us need to do this. We need to examine our lives and think about, what do I want to be about? What is it? What is God inviting me to do with my resources? And what do I have to say no to so I can say yes to that? We may need some help. Most of us will need help. Because for most of us, I mean, if we take that statistic literally, if 50% of us in here don't know what we would do tomorrow if we had a $400 emergency today, the the answer cannot simply be, oh, write bigger checks, right? Or just come up with some more money. Like, we might need some help to step back and go, okay, what's going on with my my money? What's going on with my time? How do I make better decisions? How do I dig myself out of holes? How do I take steps in positive directions? So for some of you, you might need a mentor, someone who's gone ahead of you. You might, you know, look around here and see there's someone who's a little older, maybe a little less hair. That doesn't always mean older. Um, But, you know, maybe someone who you look around and you're like, ah, they seem to have, uh, they seem to have done all right. They seem, you know, they're still here. They're still with us. They've got some wisdom. Maybe you take them out for coffee and say, can you just help me think about some of this? Some of the best advice Trace and I have gotten through the years on finances is not necessarily taking classes. It's having friends come alongside us and be like, have you ever thought of this? Here's what we do. You don't have to do it, but this has been really good for us. Get some mentors in your life, people who've done well with their, with their money, with their time, and pick their brains. Ask them what you should do. Read some books by people who live radically different lives. Oftentimes, these are lives that we might not be able to kind of choose into as well, but they challenge us to reorient our priorities. So find some books. I could recommend some to you. There's some I've been reading even in in prep for this that have have been really challenging for me personally. But again, we might not, you know, I'm not going to be Rich Mullins who lives off of $24,000 a year, but it can help me stop and go, wow, is there something there that I'm missing? Do I need to take another look at what my priorities are? So read some books about that. Um, You might need some financial counseling. You might need some counseling uh, in terms of people helping you think through your time, how you spend your time. Um, Financial counselors have been helpful for Trace and I at different times in our lives. We're like, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts here. Can you help us think about where that stuff might need to go? So maybe you need something like that. Um, For those who are interested, uh, there's a couple who's actually thinking about offering a small group that will look at some of Um, how we think about particularly our financial resources uh, in light of people who are looking to follow Christ. Um, And so this summer, we're we're talking about those details will be coming, but if that's something that you'd be interested in and joining a group that's having some of those conversations, um, talk to me, and I can uh, share you some more information about that. Or if, you know, 
time is a big thing for you, you might just even want to think about something like getting a Google Calendar. Um, you, you might already have that, but tools like that, uh, whether it's an electronic calendar, whether it's a physical calendar, whatever it takes to use some practical tools to organize your life. Um, I don't know exactly what it is that you need, but I know that all of us are finite people who have a limited number of resources. And we've been invited to steward those resources to be a part of what God's doing in the world. And it's in there that we're invited to find life and joy, not as we consume, but as we leverage those things as tools for dispensing God's grace in the world. I want to leave you with a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, because I think this quote is really cool. And because I think, again, part of why we do this is not simply because God needs us to be like, giving our money away and spending our time in these ways, so that's really important. But because part of why God wants us to do that is because it's important in shaping us into the kind of people we were created to be. Um, So I want to read this from C.S. Lewis, who's an author, a professor. Um, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as as a whole... With all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. And how we choose to use our resources is a key part in shaping who we're becoming, both with our time and with our money. All right, well, I want to wrap up as the worship team's going to come up and we're going to end with a final song, but I want to do something that's a little little different for us. Um, We don't typically do this, but, and as I was reading, I came across this prayer that I'd like for us to pray together. And I'm gonna, I want to read it to you briefly. We're going to put it up on the screen here. Um, and then I'd like to invite you to pray it with me. And it's simply this. It's, uh, Father, I know that you care for me as an abundant provider. I choose to be grateful and trusting. I believe I have enough and that what I need will always be provided. I choose to be content and generous. I know that my choices matter for myself, for others, and for future generations. Help me to live consciously and creatively, celebrating signs of your new creation that is present and coming. Creator who made me to seek the greater good of your kingdom, guide me to use my time, talents, and resources to pursue what matters most. Teach me to be free to live without worry, fear, or greed in the freedom of your abundance. Give me my daily bread as I share with those in need. Thank you for the precious gift of life. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, So I'd like for us just to kind of stand together, and we're just going to read this as a prayer. And then as soon as we're done, we'll just go into our final worship song and end our time together today. So if you'll pray with me, Father, I know that you care for me as an abundant provider. I choose to be grateful and trusting. I believe I have enough and that what I need will always be provided. I choose to be content and generous. I know that my choices matter for myself, for others, and for future generations. Help me to live consciously and creatively,
celebrating signs of your new creation that is present and coming. Creator who made me to seek the greater good of your kingdom, guide me to use my time, talents, and resources to pursue what matters most. Teach me to be free, to live without worry, fear, or greed in the freedom of your abundance. Give me my daily bread as I share with those in need. Thank you for the precious gift of life. In Christ's name I pray.